Welcome back to the Ownership Economy. In this episode, we're joined by Mariam Mazrai and Eamon Solomon of CrowdMuse, a Web3 protocol bringing together creators and fashion designers, suppliers, brands, and consumers. They're redesigning the incentives around fashion to address externalities of the fashion industry. Most importantly, they're doing it by not being the ethical choice, but by designing the ethical choice into the system. They give the consumers what they want, which is awesome, unique fashion and collectibles from designers they love. Listen on to find the connection between an infamous apparel factory disaster in Bangladesh and an Art Basel fashion drop and learn how Web3 protocols can make the value chains legible. Hey, guys. Good to see you again. Welcome to the Ownership Economy pod. Yo, yo. Good to be here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I think like it's funny because like y'all are, you're both my friends so I feel weird like being like oh yeah tell us about your tell me about your life and all that <laughs> we're, we're of course going to get into that but but first um yeah I'd like to welcome you I- Iman and Maz from CrowdMuse on the pod let's get into it so um yeah, so Maz maybe we'll start with you um where do where do you where does your story start where do you want it to start pick a spot and tell us about it Oh man. <laughs> okay. Uh, <clears throat> where does the story start? Uh, I don't know. I guess like um, uh, always been I, I quite quite a bit like entrepreneurial. I guess um, uh, maybe got into like looking at conspiracy videos and theories way too early <laughs> in my lifetime, and um, started seeing how I don't know messed up a lot of things are. Um, and I guess like an innate kind of feeling to try to solve some problems in the world. Um, so I kind of like, I think my first interaction of like actual, like like physically seeing um, certain uh, like problems in uh, textile, especially, and just kind of like mass consumption in the world was in Bangladesh. Um, so I spent about like four years there, back and forth, like um, just trying to kind of like see what was going on in an industry that basically dominated their entire economy um, there, you know, in terms of like, um, you know, modern economies, like Western economies, like outsourcing um, a lot of their, you know, cheap labor to countries like Bangladesh. Um, and so like textiles, garment making, um that type of world of manufacturing is like basically a number one source of like income for majority of the people there um and you kind of like i mean bangladesh as a place is also just a very intense place to be yeah yeah but it's like it's one, well just you know for folks who don't know right it's like one of the poorest countries in the world as well and um yeah. and you're talking about it really from the perspective of you know you said like how do i make change in the world you're like you know what i'm going to start a company right so you ended up getting into fast fashion or not fast fashion sustainable fashion right that was mm-hmm. your first that was your first go around yeah exactly fast fashion the, what led us there was fast fashion right you know like together as a team we were like if we're going to do anything we don't want to get involved in that kind of cycle and the only way to find out about it was to go and see what was happening um, and so, yeah, like, I mean, it was, it, it was a point in which it was like very, very novel still as a, as an industry sustainability, right. It was very hard to access. Uh, and what, what does actually sustainability mean in a sense, I think still 10 years later, people are still grappling as to like, what actually is sustainability? You know, what really understands it yet. Um, and like, you know, uh, ethical workers rights and so on also comes as part of that sustainability thing right it's not just about the resources and how you extract it it's also how you treat your workers 
and the treatment of workers was just like appalling um the waste and chemicals of which that it would you know have in drinking water was disgusting um I mean, I mean, it was all there, right? It was just all like a perpetual mess of like things that we don't see in our kind of um, realities in, in the West and in our societies. And it's kind of like this, like, you know, this other world where you just have like a ton of landfill and like a ton of like other waste that you've created just goes out there, right? And you never see it. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's a really good point too, because like that, that presents for a lot of people not just people in web3 it presents a huge huge opportunity just to re reimagine the economy and value just for that one area right because like the externalities of uh fast fashion fashion in general are horrific right and that's why you see like a lot of the regulation in the space really driving towards like how do we internalize that how do we have people report it how do we have people disclose it mm -hmm. especially in europe <laughs> It's going to be interesting to see how that affects European business in the coming years, because it's going to be very difficult to bring in some of that. Sorry, I'm going to wait a while before I cuss some of that stuff into the EU, because, you know, with the CSRD disclosures and all that kind of stuff that's coming up in 2024, 2025, it's going to be pretty hard to be like, yeah, so, you know, I, I turned a bunch of uh, Bangladesh into polyester and uh, polystyrenes and environmental discretion. And I also been in, ended up here in your H&M store, right? But like, yeah, good luck doing that going forward. So you did that. You did, you did the sustainable fashion brand. What'd you learn? The world is fucked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, like, I don't want to start this off with like a, like a negative like spiral, but like, I think it's just a reality check, right? I think like I, I, I came out of it because I was like, I'm never going to touch that industry again. I never mm -hmm. even wanted to work in emerging markets again, right? Uh, you know, and, and then I did later on in other like markets in the Middle East and stuff but to like try and figure out like, it just, you know, as much as you try to like, you get burnt out from the pain and like the fatigue of like trying to make something work, like, especially when it's such a mammoth thing that's been going on for generations. Like you do feel like whatever about the world. Right. And like, I personally did not want to touch that industry again. You know, I, I actually, you know, to my surprise, you know, not much has changed or accelerated in the past, like maybe decades, even though there's now like, I mean, what crowd news is doing in terms of like its access to micro manufacturers that's been a very positive thing for the industry um there is a lot more access to you know um factories that you can just go and visit and like verify yourself right or you can audit yourself and right. so it's much more accessible it's not as as centralized as a supply chain as it used to be but of yeah. course it still remains and I, I mean environmentally you know better than me like how it still adds to the the issues in the environment and so it continues to do so and i think yeah. it's not just a fashion thing it's a it's a, it's a wider well, thing than that well pause button all right so you had you did the sustainable fashion thing you learned a lot about just what's happened like like you said that we're all fucked <laughs> you came on the other side of that you know manufacturing you learned a lot about actually some opportunities there i want to hit the pause button there and say iman now, how did you back into fashion? Tell us a little, catch us up on your part of the story, and then we'll get into how you two met, because that's also, I think, going to be a fun story. But tell us a bit about your background, yeah. my man. Yeah, and maybe the, the same byline is that throughout the whole process, even from coming out of university, there were a lot of moments where like, oh, shit, the world is fucked. And so I think it takes a lot of those realizations to incentivize you to do the hard work and try to change the systems that we live in. Uh, but yeah, my background actually, maybe starting 
way back. I started getting into game building in high school. That was my foray into like programming and figuring out how to code. I just love the idea of like building the incentives and seeing whatever outcome that you're trying to achieve as a set of equations that you just kind of got to work towards. And so college time, I was trying to think, how can I apply that type of programmatical thinking and systems approach to things, uh, to something that's more of a real world problem. And uh, genuinely, my dad basically said, oh, you should do chemical engineering because energy is going to always be there. And it's like the world of atoms and bits combined. That's so, smart. I agree. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm glad, like at some points you kind of realize you just need to take the advice that you have. You don't, you don't at that early stage have like this developed gut feeling of like, this is my um, ikigai because I love doing this. You actually need to push through and develop a skill to become good at it. And then realize like there's this kind of just extendable dopamine hit of getting better at it and having the impact and doing something that the world needs. Um, but long story short, got into kind of systems engineering and started looking at like renewable energy systems and how do you, for whatever kind of energy product or material product we need, what technologies we need to actually do R&D on to be able to produce that product at a lower footprint. And so in college, kind of coming out the back end, I was doing research on algae to biofuels. We developed technology um, with the lab that I was working in. And I was basically like the one in the back just kind of doing the calculations of this is what it costs, this is the width of the algae, this is the height, if this the kind of uh, solar um, profiles meet based on the locations we're in. And so to me, it was still a game. I actually didn't realize the real world impact to me. It was like, these are all the equations, this is what it's gonna cost, how do we optimize that? Um, and then ended up selling that technology to one of the big corporations and they sunset the program just because the IP was competitive um, basically, mm, because yeah. the technology, as it grew, it would remove their market share unless they got into the technology. Mm. So from the very beginning, you're like, oh, shit, this is how it works. It's not just equations and it's audience, not a game. Audience <laughs> note, remember this point about IP. It will be very important for crowd news. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so that, that was kind of the moment where I said, okay, how do you kind of gain more leverage? And so I was helping out a few friends doing their startups and helping out kind of build um, MVPs for them, but ultimately got into, again, that big corporation setting because I realized that's where the money and leverage is. And so started working at Shell and was almost kind of like an entrepreneur and resident doing like a stint every year, going in, looking at a problem and being like, all right, this is how we can improve it. And so it was a lot of interesting things around like R&D, um, mm -hmm. kind of looking at investment within a corporate setting, but also looking at corporate venture capital and investing in technologies at the early stage and doing collaborations with startups, universities, and governments to ultimately see how, like what parts of this collaboration needs more incentives. And so as part of the same programmatical equation that we were solving, you would factor in and say, okay, subsidies need to increase by this much or mm. R&D spend needs to increase by this much over the next five years when we're looking at battery technologies because this is the bridge that's gonna help us kind of pivot into renewables ultimately. And so really interesting experience throughout, but at the end of it, I realized it just, the recommendations I was coming up to with insights didn't have the pure action that it almost needed because there's other incentives at play and there's shareholders involved and 
So the best decision isn't always the, the one that needs to be made in a corporate setting. Yeah. And so almost started looking at DAOs three, four years ago by accident. I was looking at holacracy and decentralized collaboration between, again, universities, um, governments, and, and companies to say, how can you make it almost outcome-based of like, if these actors do what they say, how do we actually split the profit and IP ownership over a technology that we develop? Mm-hmm. And so fell into kind of looking at the early primitives of the DAOs and tooling that was there with Moloch and um, Maiko actually was talking to the co-founder of that last week. And so a lot of the projects that were super early at how do you attribute value back to um, the people that have actually contributed. And so long story short, ended up at CrowdMuse from those learnings of like, okay, we need a way to be able to, for every product that we make, be able to track everyone's contribution and make sure that they own the IP that they create. And so did a few experiments, we did an event that was co-owned. So the DJs got some percent all off chain. We were just tracking points and percentages in an Excel sheet. Um, Did another experiment in upcycled fashion with the university students at Amphi in Amsterdam. And so realized fashion was an interesting product value chain, both because of its kind of technology input to make it sustainable, but also from the point that that the product touches so many people Mm -hmm. because it's such a complex multiplayer product to create. And so started doing experiments there. And that comes to where Maz and I met. Um, She was working on kind of co-ownership, DJBs, decentralized joint ventures at kind of like an energy grid level. Mm -hmm. So I was contributing to her project. She was contributing um, to kind of this fashion value chain collaboration and realized that the core infrastructure of it, of like, how do you create a protocol that makes sure that all the contributors are rewarded um, was very much the same. And so we joined forces. So you both kind of came to some interesting conclusions yourselves. Like you had this one around competitive IP and corporations, right? That one, I think is pretty important. We're going to dig into that one. And of course, you both have kind of, you, you both touch on fashion, Maz in a really deep way, you, you later on in your career. So how did you two meet? <laughs> you want to take it? <laughs> I think we actually heard of each other two years ago at one of either... Lisbon or Amsterdam, I forgot where it was exactly, but everyone was saying, yo, you got to meet Maz and uh, you guys are going to get along. And so we didn't meet in person that time. So we just started kind of online, met through the interwebs and just started kind of chatting every week, kind of thinking of ideas and brainstorming on both of our projects. Um, And then finally met in person, I think in Amsterdam, that was the first time, Mm -hmm. also the place that um, we met AJ from I guess our tech lead now, but we were doing a hackathon as well in Amsterdam. So it kind of just converged all the paths crossed at the same time. And First time I met AJ in person, he was doing push-ups in front of me and I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> him, and I, him and I went to the same block on uh, uh, doing Colonel and um, Colonel uh-huh. uh, block, block four. Yeah, yeah. And apparently he had messaged me a few times on the Slack and I had ignored it or I hadn't seen him. Uh, uh, I hadn't seen the messages and then it was really funny seeing him for the first time in person Amsterdam so it was weird and we all kind of came together at a really interesting time yeah. so you have this now you had this idea brewing you guys y'all came together you had these ideas brewing around the sharing of upside the production of IP 
the having it be in a place where everyone can kind of see it and agree on it in the same way and then also targeting it turns out like fashion so i wanted to ask you then like the why did you folks both sort of gravitate towards uh web3 crypto blockchain whatever you want to call it right like why uh why why crypto mm. um <clears throat> i think my my first interest really was always in data right like i think like after 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 the closing down of the first company it was just very apparent that like there was just a lot of information that wasn't accessible <laughs> in in the supply chain itself was like very difficult to like get data right it was like <clears throat> you know every garment or every type of item has information and then finding that information standardizing that information um uh making it easy to collect making it easy to share like it was just kind of like this there was an issue when it came to open source knowledge, right? And that became very apparent uh, in, in just doing the work. Um, and, you know, I think working in working in data science and working for an AI startup um, after after the first after my first startup just became, you know, it, it became much more interesting to me that data models, like how to create data models, how, how to create, you know, interesting algorithms, like, you know, how do you create things that could be like, predictive or preventative measures just through the collection of data right um and like uh obviously you and i you and i've known each other for a while because <laughs> you invested in my last thing and we got excited you got excited about this autopsy project right that i still have and i think that basically it was it was just like a major data exercise of saying the pain point that it drove me towards like learning more about data was that if it continues to be so gated, then it stops progression, right? Um, and 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 it comes down to like how or, or, uh, how startups track data, how VCs track data, uh, which Autopsy was trying to like, mm -hmm. I guess, solve and say, hey, these are the preventative measures of this failed company. Why don't you utilize that? So then your nine out of 10 failures turn into maybe six or seven out of 10 failures, right? And like stop wasting, you know, founders time earlier on and tell them mm -hmm. the facts about what data they should be tracking yeah. and what metrics, et cetera, et cetera. Right, we'll get into that right now. We can get into it later. But I think mm -hmm. when, it, when it came to blockchain, it became quite, it, I, I discovered it, I discovered it around maybe like 20, 2014 or whatever. And it was like mainly through reading on, um, I guess, obviously post 2008 most of the people that were within crypto at that stage and and, and bearing in mind cryptography was a thing since the 90s it was not necessarily a, a nascent concept right and it was like um very much driven by the mess of the financial crash and crisis and like the ripple effects of that uh you know generations later mm -hmm. um and so blockchain for me i got into it more from a research perspective so i did my masters at ucl doing technology entrepreneurship and i was like the only person that wrote about blockchain technology and like crypto communities and and token token communities in general and how do you take like an irl uh community and turn it and, and tokenize it and like give them ownership over like the stuff that they create or like um resources that they have access to so it was very much then oh okay this is also very similar to this like prior thing that i did in in in, in that supply chain and um at that point my interest was mainly on like countries that were sanctioned <laughs> so being yeah, uh, yeah. an iranian <laughs> yeah. um 
uh, growing up in that kind of society where <clears throat> um, uh, money was always a problem for those for those communities, right? And, and like access and trade and import export became a problem after like twenty plus years of sanctions under the US. Yeah. Like things got progressively worse and worse and worse, and they are pretty fucking bad right now. Um, and so those externalities and those issues that made me realize, and having been a staff for so long, I was like, okay, let me just try to um, bring more like monetary and funding access to uh, Iranian-based startups, tech startups um, in, in, in Iran. And so I then went down the rabbit hole of like trying to figure out how do you transfer money into Iran? How do you transfer funds into Iran? And like the UK, there was no, no, like US, there was no way. Um, Sweden was like, good with it and so they were okay with Iran and and crypto was actually a, a really big part of it because the mobile mobile penetration and adoption of mobile and crypto was very big it has been very big mm. in those in those um economies because they just have to bypass their existing like currencies or like the central currency which is the dollar that they can't even play with right because yeah. they're not allowed in a sense um, so like there was no parties, no partners that would actually put money into this thing that I was trying to do with this thing called Rise Ventures mm-hmm. um, during my time at UCL. Anyway, and then so I, I said, OK, like uh, it was it was kind of like a trotting a dead horse, but took all those learnings and like put that into my thesis. And as part of that, met a lot of met a lot of the people that were quite prominent players probably in the ICO um, phase of things, but also they were coming from um, really interesting, like financial backgrounds or understanding of, of money, right? Like money was like, th- that's how you got onboarded into crypto. It was like, you have yeah. to really understand money, right? Yeah. Um, and so it, it was an interesting kind of like interview process where it just got me into these like interesting scenarios with, you know, interviewing Vinay Gupta, who was part of the, yeah. like shipping team of um uh ethereum and kind of came from this world of like you know like dealing with like uh like crises across um certain areas that he wanted to basically try to like create some form of help or crisis management or whatever um and then met a few other very key people that are still in the space like rob knight who's really kind of the person to speak to if you want to talk about AI and blockchain kind of coming together. Um, and so it was a no brainer. It was like, <clears throat> it was like, okay, this is the thing that solves a lot of these problems. So like, I need to explore it further. So really it's very much built around like you noticing that universal access to money <laughs> ends up being a really, really critical determinant of what you can actually do in life. But then coupling that with right. what you saw in fashion, like uh, you can't just build something like what you guys are building in fashion in a database, right? Because putting it up behind one database doesn't really solve the critical issue, right? Because you have, uh, which we're now going to get into, but uh, it seems like that ended up being really the answer to the why crypto, because you're like, well, we need a universally openly accessible way to coordinate all of the parties and a blockchain based, whatever it ends up being, doesn't mean it could be Ethereum, Polygon, whatever you want, whatever project you build it on doesn't really matter. The fact that it's open and has provenance and you can track who contributes what, can give you an advantage let's get into that advantage mm-hmm. actually though so tell us a bit now that we got an understanding of the problem areas you folks are interested in the solution spaces that you saw what what how did you converge on this idea of crowd muse what is crowd muse that's a good question uh i think 
in a way, maybe just starting off and then Maz also jump in because we all see crowd news with a shared vision from different angles. Uh, I think that the name itself in a way is this shared muse, this shared vision that many people come together to um, manifest, if you want to use that word. Uh, but really coming down to it from a crypto point of view, as Maz was mentioning, there, there's a lot of value that we see on the crypto side in terms of accessibility, peer-to-peer -peer connection, being able to transfer any kind of value um, my entrance into Web3 was a little bit more on the Ethereum side of suddenly realizing that really an on-chain token is something that you can program any type of value into, whether it's data, whether it's kind of attribution to a creator or a piece of a file that you want to access um, with some kind of access controls. And so realizing that at some, at like the most bottom layer of it, it's people are gonna be contributing and adding value to society in their own way. And how do we make sure that we reward that based on um, whatever the market decides, but also what people decide is valuable. And so what I really like from, I guess, Gitcoin, and uh, I think it started from the regen community. I forgot who it was exactly of like defining the different types of value. I think there's eight of them, but mm -hmm. beyond just the financial, there's also kind of cultural and um, oh, oh, yeah, human yeah. aspects of value. This is the eight forms of capital, and they exactly. Uh, and one of the, the people who came, the person who came up with this one version at least is like Gregory Landway, the the uh, the uh, region network guy. Yeah. He he wrote a book on this, which I happened yeah. to read on a flight once. It's short enough to read in a flight, actually. But yeah, sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly it. It's it's mm -hmm. realizing that there are other forms of value, and yeah, obviously converging on the first use case, go to market, and saying, look, in the future there's boundless opportunities of being able to coordinate value with a group of people and make sure everyone's rewarded for it and being able to track every step of the way, whether it's um, the contribution proportionality, whether it's the footprint um, for the material used for the piece of fashion, all the way to the manufacturing of it, of what was the water consumption, what was the, the steam and power consumption associated with it. So all of this to us looks like data and the way that we see NFTs and tokens are ways to contain that data in a mm -hmm. way that is able to express mm -hmm. where this value needs to be transferred back. And so, yeah, to summarize it, I think it's a combination of data coordination and value flows for us. And mm -hmm. so maybe just pausing there and, and getting Maz's perspective on how crowd means connect. Yeah, no, no, you're spot on. I think, I think we just got really, I mean, first of all, we just had like such a, like, it's really, really difficult, uh, and I've been subject of this, like finding a team that you really like aspire to be around and like, um, you know, respect each other and like really just like grind together and like, you know, having had like a prior kind of, um, I guess a bit of contribution uh, back and forth with Iman and I, it was very, very apparent that our thinking was thinking and, you know, somewhat overlapping experiences got us really excited about more kind of what can smart contracts do, right? Like, you know, like on the protocol protocol level, it was very fascinating for us to say, okay, um, we just have to, the, 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 the solutions that we see that on a contract level it can do, um, which then, you know, it's like a whole of different things that it can create, right? But like, really from an architecture standpoint, it was kind of where we started, right? It was like, 
the three of us sitting around saying, okay, let's just come up with the, you know, how are we going to, how are we going to architect this thing? And like very simply realized that the alignment was like, make, make the entire, make the entire supply chain open, make the entire thing like visible. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So, so I think that's kind of where it just emerged. And I think this kind of like marketplace concept and like consumer side of things. And it's funny because like, you know, we gotta we gotta value pop it the way we can in order for it to get the traction that it needs, right? And I think like yeah. sometimes consumer crypto makes it seem quite like on surface level, oh, what is really like what is really under the hood of a consumer crypto product, right? Yeah. It should really have interesting utility as yeah? not mimicking web two or unless or else just you could just say you're, say you're doing something yeah say you you're doing a western company yeah, and, then that. That. and that's fine because you know? like those things they have they're very it's a little easier to be honest you can just it go is. there and be like hey i don't have to worry about all these other parties i can have my customers i can have myself and i can have honestly not too many more maybe your employees have a little bit of ownership in the company and that's it fewer yeah. stakeholders there's a really scoped down territory of who you're going to be dealing with and less, you know, I guess some would call it noise. Right. But, um, yeah, but I think what's really interesting about what you're doing is how you think about and incorporate ownership into it. So I wanted to ask you, like, for us is a big part of what we do on the pod. And so, um, but one thing that's really important to Martin and I's kind of thesis in this space is that we can't just do a bunch of little, you know, one-off projects with their ownership and all that. Like, really the key thing that we want to prove out is uh, over the coming years is that you can actually achieve more economies of scale and better network effects by including larger parties of stakeholders in the production of value, right? That doesn't, it's a little generic and we're finding it in a lot of, um, in a lot of sectors because it's very sector specific, but I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, your, your, your ultimate endeavor here is not to just make crowd music, this little, you know, niche project of fashion where, you know, you have a few brands come in and do stuff. How, why do we, we need to achieve economies of scale and network effects here, right? Like what is the big thing you're really trying to get that's unlocked by this? Yeah, I can give it another go. Uh, I think, so my background is energy and the reason I pivoted somewhat into fashion is because I see the connect there. Even when I was looking at the energy side of things, we were building materials for fashion supply chains and Mm -hmm. actually doing the math of, as we pivot away from things like polyethylene and polyester and the products, like even on the detergent side beyond fashion, because there's a whole value chain of like, create the fashion piece, clean it up and then see where the waste goes and try to recycle some of those materials back. What, one thing too, which you might may know better than most, right? Is I just, sorry, so side note, since you're talking about it, it's super fascinating, right? Is that this is the thing that not a lot of people really get when they talk about like, hey, we have to shut down fossil fuels. We have to you know, do this and that. It's like the fossil fuel economy is embedded in like 37 different value chains, right? Where it's like, it's the input here and the waste product there, right? And it goes from here to there, right? And here I'm talking about like, of course, the petrochemicals themselves, different levels of refinement, organic waste products that then feed into, you know, the chemical industry and what have you. So like, that I think is a really important thing to point out, and just to just to hit you on the achieving economies of scale, right? Like, sorry, continue, but that's just a side note. Absolutely, <laughs> and maybe to add to the side note, my favorite 
diagram, as nerdy as it sounds, is the Sankey diagram, which actually shows like the way yeah. that materials flow, value flows, and how proportionally it kind of goes into the consumer side of it from supply. Yep. I will put that in the show notes because it's an awesome diagram. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But maybe to actually work our way back towards the economy of scale, uh, what we're doing now in terms of let's say the e-commerce consumer angle is as simple as saying there is an NFT that has kind of some splits and value attribution to all the creators that worked on that product. And really that's the simplest form of being able to sell a product that brings value and, and rewards the people that were a part of it. And on top of that building block, we're, we're thinking about obviously the collective ownership of things. So Obviously, there might be a creator collective that's contributing to a few products. There might be a headless brand that has, let's say, 10 to 20 creators that are all sharing risk by kind of creating products together and sharing value back to this collective, similar to this idea of the firm that basically says that there are some economies of scales involved in being able to share upfront costs together to be able to kind of maximize the growth because individually, it's really hard to do that and compete with these huge conglomerates. And so the pivotal aspect of being able to reach economies of scale is to be able to, on the creator side, have a network of creator that is able to kind of share IP, remix, grow together, and kind of create these headless brands that will then position them almost as an alternate path to these, let's say, web two conglomerate fashion brands in the case of fashion. Cool. Um, but on the decentralized supply chain side, it's the same thing, right? Like there was a oh, report, I forgot. Well, actually, what it was. Let, me, let, me, let me stop you there. Cause I think both of you, this would be a great yes. place to now just say like, we've talked about this stuff in varying degrees of abstraction, right? There are various problem areas we want to address, solutions you've cooked up. And honestly, all of them are somewhat abstract, not because of, it's not your fault. It's because some people come to this with varying levels of degrees of understanding of like, what is a non-fungible token? What does it represent? What can it represent? How does it represent data, right? There's all these types of things. I think it'd be great. It'd be a great stop part for us to stop and say, what does a, what does a real life interaction building with CrowdMuse look like? Maybe you could walk us through one of your recent projects and we can, we can walk through it end to end and then maybe even maybe Maz or something, we'll come back to this Maz can compare it to like, well, you know, maybe when I was in 2011 in Bangladesh, here's what it actually looks like currently today, right? Versus what we're building, right? So maybe let's start with what you're like, what you've built, right? It's not about what you're building. You have built stuff, right? So, so walk us through yes. one of the, uh, through one of these launches. Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I think, uh, so RV1, we pushed out in um, July this year. Um, and it was very much like, okay, let's put the, let's put the contract to test uh, with a lot more like real life cases, um, use cases, and also um, create a nice kind of front end wrapper, which basically just mimics already existing kind of user flows, which is basically everyone, which is what every person is used to, which is e-commerce. Um, so, you know, um, the, the how, how most of these kind of like pilot projects or these are like pilot I guess drops that we're calling it in a sense because they are curated by us in a sense that um as a marketplace you have a as a platform model and also as a marketplace you obviously have a supply and demand so we baked in the supply by bringing in our network of manufacturers um th th at the moment we kept it intentionally uh, like a small number of manufacturers to manage i mean supply relations is, is is not an easy 
feet. Um, and so like that relationship is important to sustain. Um, and so um, a manufacturer is providing, you know, materials, blanks, prints and so on of items that we went after that we thought would naturally always be in demand, right? By people that want kind of like something that is kind of merch-like or something a little bit custom. And really the purpose of it was to say, okay, if we bring the parties from the supply side in and also bring the parties from the demand side in, which are the consumers of the brands or the consumers mm. of these communities that you're doing drops with, um, um, and just and just work through that process of yeah. like how the splits work and everything like that, right, bit by bit. Um, so, so yeah. oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. It sounds but, like you're getting uh, yeah. to it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I guess like cut a long story short. Um, from a go-to-market standpoint, the beachhead was we're in crypto. Let's just utilize a crypto kind of beachhead. Um, there's a lots of brands and protocols in crypto that are very kind of like culture savvy. Like I think like. Web3 has that kind of identity thing and values and principles or whatever that we kind of resonate all around. And so brands like FWB and like um, L2s that we've worked with, like Optimism, Base um, and Lens, like, you know, these guys were kind of part of that uh, initial beachhead to say, you know, let's just do a drop that is interesting for your collectors mm -hmm. and your fans and um, create something that is a much more high quality product. It's more of a collectible, it's a low uh, minimum order quantity, meaning that it's limited nice. edition, da da da. And, um, you know, we'll deal with the rest, right? Like we'll deal with design, we'll deal with whatever. And, and, and an important point actually to clarify is from a, from a flywheel experiment or exercise perspective is like we initially were looking at going after brands and, and like kind of, already kind of slightly leapfrogging and going directly to brands and say, go and bring your, you know, product creation collaboration on chain to like solve your ESG issues that you keep talking about. But it was, <laughs> but it was a very harder like sell, right? Cause it's still very kind of new, um, that kind of mechanism. Uh, and also maybe some of them at times are actually don't even have enough data on provenance regardless. They probably just know about the kind of end source of the supply chain rather than the very kind of beginning of it. Mm -hmm. So it was very clear that we wanted this to always be a collaboration protocol and that collaboration protocol made us go after like single player creators who are very talented 3D designers, pattern makers, um, fashion designers, um, very multidisciplinary mm -hmm. in like what they can create and items that they have experience in making and interacting with. And so they became our core user base, right? And yeah. they still are our core user base. And so, so these we just are, match them and so for example can yeah. you give us an example of one like you know i'm not at all like the, you know what my fashion is it's you guys you can't see my video but i'm wearing like a, a molecule hoodie right so it's like half crypto, <laughs> half crypto stuff that you know either i've invested in or i've helped people with and like hey take my swag and the rest yeah. is honestly uh patagonia because they don't destroy the environment for a number yeah. of reasons right and like if i have to yeah. buy something i'll buy it from them because <laughs> so, i can at least say here are a few things i know happen but but yes. for your folks, for folks who are maybe not so savvy, like who did you guys end up end up landing, and and how did you get them on the platform? Yeah, I mean, um, we had a relationship with a lot of the designers and the creators for about it about a year, right? I mean, like you know, we um, we kept them in a kind of it's like an, uh, the the early adopters, right? Early adopters, uh, fifty or so that were like curious about the concept, and so. Um, 
to, 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 to take a step back, what I was saying earlier about like going after apparel and accessories is always going to be, is, is one of the highest like consumer produces in the world right it's gonna it's always going to be there it's always going to be utilized it's probably always going to get better and better so um manufacturing side there was some from from my network previously there were also designers that were coming in and saying i want to work with my supplier right because they had a relationship and so you let them kind of own that right because supply supply relations is something that a lot of people get very gated about because it's so hard to sustain that relationship with them and so it was just like, let's just experiment. Let's just say, you know, we kind of were waiting around. I'm not waiting, but we were shipping a lot of stuff, trying to make sure our UI UX is better to even like, you know, we were like, hey, we're consumer, right? We've got to look good. And we're also like coming, we're in this like industry that cares a lot about aesthetics. So we need to look fucking great before we start selling stuff. And then also you have a lot of things that are happening, like the fulfillment, like the logistics, like the customer orders, like all these other things that you just kind of need. To, to get right in a sense or to do and practice um and so how it came about i think it was it's not an overnight thing i think with these collaborators like it took a lot of like back and forth and communication and conversation and conviction to say trust us to do a drop on crowd, crowd news for you and um let us sell directly to your fans basically um but that came for that we were building for like a year prior to that right like we were we were trying to sustain relationships all around um like a lot of the manufacturers that we talked to, to today we were trying to close for over a year because they just were looking at our mvp going what the fuck is this right mm-hmm. like they loved the idea but they were like how are you going to actually make this work and, and yeah. so yeah and so what and so what have you guys produced through the through the product through the platform so far the protocol like what have what, what have been some of your notable drops or something you can walk us through that people are like hey people people got this they loved it etc i think the one that I mean, Iman, you can also say which one is I'm interested to hear which one's your favorite. But I think I love the optimism one. The optimism one was really cool. Um, actually, backtracking that as well, I think I really loved our Genesis artifact one, and I can come back to the optimism one. So when we went live with our V1, we wanted mm-hmm. to just show off the NFT and what it can do, and it was just like splits and a bunch of files in a in an NFT as an archive, which was pretty cool. Um, and so we kind of like opened it up and said uh, th- that was our first hundred mints that was like that's our actual first hundred users on the product which is really sick yeah um so so that one was like you know crowd users here like support the v1 here's the white paper here's a bunch of other fun things that you can access once you mint and so it was like playing on with this you know concept of like um you know upselling what is in the nft which is like a bunch of artifacts that are creator create uh, creator developed and so you can just kind of like access them. And so that kind of plays a little bit on the kind of consumer model side, eventually for brands to play around with. And there's also like a bunch of files within these that are like uh, original files of the 3D file, which then kind of alludes and signals to our like future longer term IP on chain composability thing. Yeah. Um, not to give too much secret source away, but like the vision that we see is like get the other creators to come and like, you know, license your work and you create new derivatives out of it, blah, blah. Yeah. So that was like a really like good case study of the first one and then optimism one was really fun like it just sold out really quickly the team was great they were really behind it um and we had a lot of fun like coming up with a concept for their on-chain summit for like super chain edition nice. in istanbul um and i, I love that one that was a really fun one well i think like one that i was when i was looking at your site beforehand that one you could actually go get today right is the uh the slow rodeo one right so don't yeah. be clear too for people listening. Oh, yeah, 
they're like, hey, yeah, <laughs> nice, right? So like, that's the thing. People are like, hey, there's a lot of abstractions and NFT bullshit and all that. What do you guys actually do? So they brought together, from what I can tell, and you can talk me through if I kept this right, right, is you have, you know, base, the layer two on Coinbase um, is doing a bunch of stuff for Art Basel as a crypto company is, go, is wont to do at this time of year. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, you have, these physically re these physical real existing objects right there crew neck sweaters that Maz actually is wearing um and you brought together a sustainable clothing brand right to say like hey uh yeah sure we'll do this and you brought together an artist a 3d artist and they all used your platform to collaborate in terms of like who produced what how many of these do we make um all that kind of stuff and then those contributions go onto a blockchain in some way they basically say like the creator did this supplier did that We're like how does it work like talk me through some of the specifics there when if it's if there's secret sauce you can reveal of course <laughs> yeah we'll we'll drop in some secrets but maybe just for the audience as well talking about what the system was before to produce fashion and specifically fast fashion to the actual solution side of things um and great and I think it's just helpful to realize that's where the economies of scale comes in. But typically what happens is a brand that's starting off needs the upfront capital to be able to first produce or mass produce a set of garments for their audience. Obviously, because of economies of scale, the more you order, so if it goes from 100 garments like a shirt to 1,000 garments, the unit cost goes down. And so um, a lot of brands old school brands are incentivized to overproduce and hope that they sell out, even if there's a lot of waste. And so some of the luxury brands might end up spent sending like 70 to 80% of their inventory and burning it because they don't want the scarcity of their luxury items to actually um, bring down the price. The, the ugly side of fashion. The ugly but side it's of fashion. happening as we are speaking right like if you don't believe him on you can actually find these online there are uh, there are, you know these geospatial um scientists who also like track these because they can because they've built tech to track like you know methane emissions from a from a gas well and they go wait a minute what's this giant pile of clothes in kenya that's on fire <laughs> so, sorry exactly how did it get there who's yeah. is it we don't that's know weird. why is it there it's like well you know we can't just give that stuff away for free we charge yeah. a bunch of people for it. And uh, that's, that opens up the alternate universe where some people get their hands on it for free or like, you know, my favorite alternate universe of clothes is where what if that other team won that famous, you know, World Cup or Super Bowl or whatever, right? Where like all the, you know, they produce two different versions because you got to have both depending on who wins the big game, right? And then, well, true. what happens to the rest? And, it ends up in the landfill in Kenya. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> that's, so that's so true. That's so true. Sorry, and, and also just to say as well, like the and and sorry to interrupt you, Bob, but like it it is really it really you yeah it really bothers me in conferences as well, guys. Like we gotta like calm that shit down. Like obviously we're we're doing drops that we want to make sure it hits a certain number, and so we don't deal with any dead stock. But like. You know, we go there and we're selling these items and like all people are coming to pick up and like we're right next to a bunch of other merch stands with insane amount of items of T-shirts and everything that just get left there. It's really important for us to like if we're in this space. Right. And we're talking about regen and we're talking about all these other things like we have to really consider how we also kind of like deal with manage all these types of things or else 
it's like yeah. it's scary seeing it. The volumes yeah. are insane. Yeah, yeah. I think, and then also just to go your last thing on your point there is that like using your product, your protocol you built on top of all the very you know this. By the way, you guys are live on a number of side chains, right? Not just Ethereum mainnet. Yeah, yeah. So like yeah. Yeah. Ethereum base and options. Yeah. Exactly. You can go there and what you're solving a real business problem because if you're if you're one of these conferences or events, you you're not just sharing ownership, which that's cool, right? People are like, well, what is the real problem solved? You're projecting demand, right? So like if you're going up into, into the weeks uh, for Art Basel, for instance, and Art Basel and the vendor or, you know, the brand in this case, wherever it is, whether it's base, whether it's uh, CU3D or anyone else, like you can actually project the demand for your product as you go in there by who, how many people transact on the NFT and collect it. So you're like, Great, they hold right. this. They're gonna to want to collect the sweatshirt. I know I have 75, 100, 500 sales, right? And then you can just you mm -hmm. know, do your normal thing and say, "Well, I know I've sold these. How much more should I take?" <laughs> right? So, all so data. Just, yeah, it's all data. So sorry. Go go ahead, Iman. We uh, good and good sidetrack. <laughs> no, it's the right sidetrack. And the way to connect it is that was the previous system where you overproduce because the unit costs are lower and in the math of it all it actually is it works out and people are incentivized to just waste because in the end they do make the sales but the system that we're trying to create um, is to do that made made to order system so you go to a brand whether it's a brand like an l2 that has a community and wants to create a brand around it and they just don't have the production capacity we then come in and match them to manufacturing capacity we match them to the creators and very really, I guess from the curation side, like narrative driven drops that connect to their community. And it's not just bullshit merch that people just want because it's free. And so looking at that, the main reason why it hasn't been done before is manufacturers are incentivized to work with these big brands because they're the ones that do the big orders and the manufacturers make the most money out of that process. And so what we're trying to do with our partners and manufacturers is prove that there's demand in this made to order approach. And so by coming in and saying, look, our, our customers are a little bit more flexible on when they receive it because there's a narrative built in, there's kind of like an NFT angle, there's attribution and footprint to do with it. The, the manufacturers are incentivized to add us to their list and slowly, hopefully, kind of go from 10% of their capacity being used in these types of drops to slowly increasing that percentage because they realize actually they their name is out there, they get direct to consumer access. They're able to then also show that whatever like infrastructure that they add in terms of technology, it being renewable, the yeah. customer actually cares. Cause in the past, they no one really got that credit. Like even if they went sustainable. Maybe it affects their wastage and, and loss rate too at the end. And then, right? Like maybe when they're like, hey, I've yeah. taken a new client. Uh, this client is CrowdMuse. I've, I've done, you know, what have they shipped, you know, whatever. I, at the beginning, maybe they just bulk it, oh, 5,000 units, whatever. But they're eventually like, but wait, 5,000 units with zero wastage or 5,000 units with zero <laughs> wastage. Wait a minute, that might be not such a bad problem. John should be like the voiceover of our ads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just put me in your business development. Zero wastage. Yeah, exactly. Have you, like, talk to your CFO. Come to this meeting with your exposure wastage numbers. We'll talk to you about how we're going to fix that shit, right? <laughs> right. Right. Cool. All right. So like maybe one other one other thing to get into on some of these, um, you know, these transactions, maybe Iman or Maz, whoever kind of wants to take it is 
you know, we were talking about the uh, the the crew, this new project you, your this new drop you're doing for for Art Basel, uh, ninety nine dollar crew neck. I mean, super honestly, super reasonable when you look at some of the some of the inflation and all the prices, you know, price prices going up around this stuff. So uh, mm -hmm. it doesn't seem outlandish to me. You could very much charge way more than that for something that's happening at an event like this. Uh, but tell me a little bit about the economics, right? So like, I have no, I know nothing about yeah. what the what the split is for the existing system. I would imagine that the brand is getting like a lion's share of it. And then the manufacturer is getting like a next you know, piece, but they're really looking at the unit and shipping a ton of units. And then the creators are probably like not doing well. So I'm curious to know, like what is the split <laughs> in your system? <laughs> I love that. Um, yeah, I can, I can talk on it a little bit as well. Um, yeah, so in terms of the numbers that go into it, right? I think like, um, uh, $99. Yeah. I think usually when it comes to like, uh, once you know, once you know your unit costs, because, you know, you're adding in the cost of the blank itself, which is the actual kind of, uh, like the crew neck itself, uh, as for this example, and also then all the other kind of like print techniques and everything you add on top of it kind of comes up to a certain amount. Um, US manufacturers are predominantly very expensive, right? So this is a, um, uh, LA apparel blank manufactured by halftone um and so yeah U US manufacturers tend to be on the higher range than like let's say Portugal or the UK um uh, but they also like um pay their workers very well like twenty dollars twenty five dollars plus mm -hmm. um, for machinists and so on which is great um so 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 for something like that that was like roughly about sixty three dollars sixty four dollars per unit um you know we would we would naturally just take uh, about one point we would naturally add about one point five to one point five to two two percent um uh markup um which will then give you the final price right um the pricing in which that we uh, eventually go sell at though also gets opted by the brand that we're doing it for so like if Bay says hey the range of my audience can probably afford anywhere between like fifty to a hundred dollars which is also very similar to optimism that we try to keep it within that range um um and so for the and also really this is all on the site you can literally go through like manufacturing and go down and like see what the cost of everything was like the total stock cost for this one was about four thousand seven hundred seven hundred and sixty dollars right for the production itself yeah um and and hence why manufacturer is getting 64 percent um uh, the, the brand itself was Slow Rodeo, which was leading on the design and the narration and the creation and everything itself, um, gets the, the the second highest, and then spread and then the rest of it is spread across like the three D designer and also us as the marketplace. Mm -hmm. um, uh, for 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 these drops so far, interestingly, most of the L twos, I think, from a marketing perspective, they just didn't want to take a percentage; they wanted to give it mostly back to the creators. Um, so the split mechanism is quite interesting because then once you kind of know, it all starts with just knowing as much as, as much as possible about the numbers first for production, for how much the 3D designer usually costs, like what is that upfront cost? Like there's a lot of information that you're like, per role, you're getting all the information, right? Per role, per task, basically. Wow. Um, so... The per role per task, you're kind of like getting all of this stuff right now. Obviously, we're not like we're not so automated, right? This is a V1, and so like really the main automated bit is the point of sale and the point in which you're adding the information into the 
smart contract for it to then get deployed onto the Crowdmeans marketplace on whichever network you want it to be on. But prior to that, all of this, you know, all of this uh, acquisition of data, all of this or acquisition of calculations and so on and so forth is being done. We're handholding a lot of the kind of users through that through that approach. We're bringing in our knowledge of like how stock works and how production works and how whatever works. But at the same time, we're also very much learning about you know, categorizing, you know, a 3D designer with 10 year experience or 15 year experience should be getting X. Do they always want commission upfront? Do they always want half later? Like, you know, like it's roles, basically. It's just like tasks that we're trying to figure out mm-hmm. per per individual. Well, it sounds um, like you're not, I was, I was going to say, it yeah. sounds like you're not touching on some of the stuff that, uh, that you've learned. What are the, from doing these drops so far, what have you, what have you taken away from, you know, learnings in terms yeah. of like what to do next, where the next next big gaps are, how has what you've built so far worked and what comes next? Yeah, I'll take a I'll take a start with that from like a, a more of a business model standpoint. I think we have a lot more learning to do on yeah. Uh, I think I'll have a lot more learning to do on um like how the business model itself works from a revenue sp- perspective, right? Because um Although we believe in the world of which you can then make the whole entire supply chain transparent and and everything is multiplayer in a sense and it is collaborative, um, if there's every individual that is trying to take percentages out of the split, then really how much are individuals getting, right? Then it kind of gives us a question to answer or think about, which is like, what game are we playing here? Are we playing the game of... Um, low volume, high priced items where there's a higher margin, a higher margin for these creators to feel like they're getting enough uh, earnings from these drops that they would wish to continue. Or is it like, okay, it's a lower price kind of marketplace with like a very higher volume thing. The higher volume thing scares us a little bit because the higher volume thing then brings us into that kind of production side that we don't necessarily want to entertain. But I think higher volume is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Higher volume based on if we can get if we can get these brands and these drops to get into a point of re- like repetitive retention yeah right in, in a sense of like how SaaS did it for software right you know like we know exactly the subscription that we're getting monthly it's a very sweet pr- predictive business model that still works very well to this day and so if we can start getting ourselves into that kind of approach volume then becomes less scary right Whereas right now, figuring out where, where does the market, this marketplace sit within this, you know, kind of on-chain marketplace world and also e-commerce. Like we're not just dealing with crypto here, right? We're, 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 we're managing a lot of IRL use cases. And so these are very serious people coming from traditional industries. And so we can't, you know, say that this whole thing is going to get them a ton of earnings and then it doesn't, right? So we have to also play that game carefully. Yeah. And also where do we sit? Do we sit in this kind of affordable bracket are we like an open sea where like anything goes and it's just a bunch of crap or some good stuff and then at at that point it's open anyway so you kind of like take your gas off the pedal in terms of the control of like what gets sold on there or do we sit within this like more affordable premium premium kind of uh, approach so so it it depends on where it sits and 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 it does get very much guided by the brands that you bring on or the appetite of the buyer base, right? So like, can they afford $50 for something? Can they afford $100 for something? And that's also a little bit of a dangerous game to play in terms of where we sit price point wise. That's something to consider and also to consider how revenue splits longer term could become much more interesting and start standardizing. And what I mean by that is like form- formulating um, 
enough rolls that would take like maybe up to 5% out of the portion. So what that basically means is if you are a creative director, if you are advisory, if you are an art director, you have a lot of say in the creation of a product. It's not just the manufacturer. It's not just the designer, right? You should be earning from that idea. You should be earning from that evolution of that product creation. But that doesn't necessarily mean then everyone is getting like tight percentages back. So 5% potentially could just be allocated to that portion. 5% just look at it as like 5% from the revenue, but also 5% of tokens perhaps eventually of this like drop, let's say, or this community of drops, um, drops for communities. And so like you get, we can start kind of formulating it a little bit better over time of like, what should these roles be getting in this product creation in a sense? Nice. I think like, so lot. It's um, my summary of a lot of what you said there too is basically like you have you have the nuts and bolts of like product market fit emerging in a lot in, a lot, in some very specific places. It's about now almost looking at like uh, how does the market part of this <laughs> scale, right? So Iman, sorry, you have some learnings to share too as well. Obviously, building this thing along, we would love to hear from you before we kind of head into what's next for you folks. Yeah, and I'll try to connect it to the market. It was exactly that. I just wanted to add that perspective of the previous system, again, relied on um, having, a, I guess, relatively high margins. So the margins that you typically see in even non-luxury is somewhere between 2.5 to 3 um, X of the actual unit costs. And on the other side of it is people on the less luxury side, they overproduce and it's more of like a volume game. And then luxury takes up the margin more. So it might be like 10x, depending on some of the brands, just because of the brand value. And so you kind of, from an equation math economics point of view, you know where the value lies. And so what we're really trying to do is for these early brands, for now, lower the margin as much as possible to prove that this collaborative model actually works. And so our margins, as Matt said, is like somewhere between 1.5 to 2. Um, so far, that's been the max. And so the way that creators are monetizing is that they're creating a digital 3D pattern that is used in one drop. They might make less per drop, but then we're able to allow other creators and brands to license their work and monetize it in new products. So it's in a way a volume game, but in a very different way where it's kind of matching it to new customers rather than overproducing. Um, on obviously the manufacturing side, it's really around making sure that we can get more and more of their manufacturing capacity. So that part scales the same way that everyone has always tried is either um, vertically integrate or provide a kind of modular supply chain that you're able to tap into the supply depending on um, where the order comes from. And then lastly, on the brand side is saying, instead of trying to take on all the risk as a firm and needing to increase the margin and needing to overproduce, let's actually reduce the risk, bring in this upfront cost or remove this upfront cost model and say that only when the orders are made does the actual upfront cost kick in to manufacture the pieces. And so firms have more of an incentive because of the lower risk to be able to reduce their margin a little bit. So that's, let's say, on the scalability of the economic side. From a market point of view, we're taking the stepwise approach where we're doing these kind of headless brands and maybe from a definition point of view, that could be a group of people that come together and form a shared identity and brand that resonates with the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that angle, it's saying that, look, there's going to be more and more smaller communities and niche communities forming that resonate with a certain idea or value. 
It's around being able to service these 100-person communities in a way that still from a supply and manufacturing side, you're connecting the manufacturing, but creating a different design or creating a small change to be able to service that. And so we're working with Web3 native brands that don't have production capacity and slowly increasing um, the, the brands that we work with. Yeah. And then longer term, hopefully increasing the value prop to traditional brands and saying, hey, here's an offering where you get a whole new set of creators, a whole new bunch of creative IP that you can use without needing to have in-house creative. And we have a network of manufacturers. So you don't need to do vertical supply chains to make it worthwhile. You can actually do on-demand supply chains that tap into a more decentralized network. Yeah, that is pretty, that's profound too, because it could be, it could be more resilient. It can be a cost saving and efficiency saving. There's a lot of really interesting things that pop up there. And then as well, um, what I, what I thought is interesting is that if you make this a very, very appealing thing for the established fashion brands, you may be able to eat some of their lunch before they know what's happening. <laughs> so mm-hmm. like that's kind of like that's why I've always thought this idea was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I wanted to give you a little bit of a chance to shill because it sounds like both of you just mapped out what's really ahead for the next three to six months in terms of what your your hypothesis around market and what have you. But just you know, take one more take one more time to tell us what's really up, what's coming up for you, folks. What are you really focused on in the next three to six months? Um, yeah, I think on a product roadmap wise, it's, it's just getting more and more interesting for us. Like, you know, I think right now it's like, also like building, you know, kind of this model of like building skill, building things that don't scale at the early stages for like a platform model like this. So we're kind of in that, in the kind of weeds of it all right now. Um, there's a lot of cleanup that needs to happen on the product. There's a lot more like pages that we need to start developing out, um, a lot more better kind of like user flows and making the interaction with the product much more seamless and easier. I think for a product like this, we, we have taken we have taken on a very challenging product because um, it is consumer f- facing and so consumer is very demanding. It's very easy to complain. Um, and so uh, like it needs to, um, eventually the product would have to become like a lot more seamless with this checkout and like how kind of that part of it works, which I, which I feel like we've done a pretty, pretty good job in a space of a couple of months, having been, you know, throwing ourselves out into the market, you know, getting people just to buy (laughs) has been a pretty awesome challenge. Um, We haven't like gated it as much from a purchasing standpoint. We've gated it from a crate standpoint because we want to vet those users, but like, and have a sustain a little bit of a quality on the marketplace before we go open. But like, um, yeah, I think so far, uh, yeah, awesome effort. <laughs> um, but longer term, right, I think, yeah, so it's getting serious, right? Like, you know, like at the moment, you know, you, you have to like consider there's a lot of there's a lot of factors here, right? And I think we just talked about a lot of them. Um, if 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 this if this type of product needs to sustain and be in the world, then it needs a lot of good fundraising and backing. Uh, from some serious partners mm-hmm. um, that either understand the industry or also understand where crypto is going and where on-chain consumer is going and on-chain commerce is going. So I think fundraising is on the on the cards um, and um, working more towards, uh, yeah, what I mentioned on the product development side, but also, you know, we said to ourselves from the get-go, let's do up to 10 curated drops, which basically means it's basically come up with a entire kind of, you know, order book of, 
the different talents that we're working with, the different manufacturers that we're working with, and just kind of set that as the foundational layer until we start kind of like opening up the marketplace or like what Iman said, going out to more traditional brands or just bringing more people onboarded onto the onto the platform. Um, and I think like it's in the cards somewhere, Q2 or Q3, and things do always take longer than you think to, to, to potentially move it towards an open marketplace. And I think when you move it into an open marketplace, then you're kind of hoping that you have product market fit or else you won't do it. You just keep it gated still. <laughs> um but yes i think there is there's a feeling of like product market fit is a funny one because it's like a feeling right it's like you just know when the tap opens and the users come and they want to use them that's the feeling but i don't think we're quite there yet it's, it would be too bullish to say that we are there yet we're not there yet yeah. um but that's where i see in the next three six months i think it might nice. and so where well. where do people find you you know you said you're going to be doing you're going to be fundraising. You have some traction. You have sales. I mean, I looked, I mean, just to pump your bags a little bit. People are like, oh, what, well, what have they really sold and all that? Like, I basically, if you're looking at the, uh, at this attention and power sl uh, slow rodeo drop for, uh, for your the art basil thing that's happening now, 64 of the 75 of those have been sold already. Right. So if you're, if yeah. you're, uh, if you're trying to get in front of that, you don't have much time. Right. So get out there and <laughs> that one, just then also to tell you, Oh, geez, 65. It's funny. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say it. It's like 65. <laughs> that was weird. Yeah. We just got I one sale. I was looking at it earlier today. I just refreshed it. So, yeah, someone did buy Someone's it while watching. We were doing this. Yeah. Someone's <laughs> watching. Wow. But maybe also to, as a place kind of to people, for them to find us, obviously, CrowdMuse on Twitter. We're going to be doing a bunch of new drops, but something that kind of from a vision point of view to, to help people see where this could go in a world and whether it's crowd muse or kind of where the, the ideas and everything converges from all of the actors playing in this space, it will look like almost an idea factory, the same way that Zora is removing the barrier for people to come in and create and instantly be able to monetize without understanding anything about Web3. Mm -hmm. It is a way almost like a Kickstarter model where people come in, have an idea, they're matched to all the creators and makers that will help make that idea a reality and find ways to monetize and just create the stuff that they're super into because it's a lot easier to find those 10 or 100 true fans. And that's really all that's needed in this new model where you don't need to have um, vertically integrated supply chains. You just collaborate with friends and do it together and everyone wins. Awesome. Well, I think like this would be this is a very cool evolution of what's been built in fashion. Viewing it as a viewing it as now like an ecosystem of interlock of interchangeable pieces that can be coming and redesigned by anybody with new economics, right? It's part of part of what we need to see in the world, folks. So thanks for thanks for joining me today. Thanks for riffing on this stuff. And uh you heard you heard him on. Check out crowdmuse.xyz. Uh we'll link the stuff in the show notes. And yeah. I'll see y'all next time. Yay! Thank you, Jahu. Thanks, Jahu. That was fun. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of The Ownership Economy. Don't forget to like and subscribe. 